Well, let's just jump right in here then. Uh, I've got to play catch up. So let me remind you that we are talking about the book of Revelation that John wrote from the island of Patmos to seven churches in West Asia Minor around 95 AD under intense persecution of the Roman Empire. The purpose of this book, the reason it was written, was to encourage the church to endure persecution, to challenge them to live godly, to reveal what was, what was presently happening, and what was to come. There is a prophetic aspect of this book. And to warn them about the impeding judgment that would fall. And so just as a reminder, last week we covered three of the seven churches. We started in Ephesus, the, the city closest to Patmos. We went to Smyrna, we went to Pergamum, and that's where we ran out of time. So we're going to charge through these four churches today. And that is the order that they are addressed in the book. It makes this upside-down kind of U-shape. But if you notice these dashed lines, I didn't really point this out. Those are trade routes. Those are trade routes. Antioch in in Pisidian Antioch is mentioned in the book of Acts as a a place where the disciples and apostles would go, and and then they would disperse from there. We know Colossae, uh, that is one of the letters, Colossians, that was written in the New Testament. Of course, uh, Ephesus, and then you've got the Asian Sea, but you, know, you go over this way and you get to a couple of the other cities and places that are mentioned in Scripture. But, the, but now we're in Revelation 2, Revelation 3, and we're looking at these messages to the churches. And there was a formula that we looked at last week, uh, how each of these begins with a salutation to the angel, to that church. Remember, he holds the seven stars in his hands, and those represent the seven angels to those seven churches. Then it acknowledges a praise to Jesus. It goes back to to chapter 1 where we see this image of the glorified Christ. He then, for most of the churches except Laodicea, he commends them for their faith or for their actions or whatever it is. He then introduces a rebuke of the church except for Smyrna, which we've already talked about, and what we'll see tonight with Philadelphia. Then he gives them an exhortation and then a promise for obedience. And each of those letters ends, He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. And so we followed that format. And so um, I don't think I did it. Uh, No, I didn't. But let me just remind you, if you didn't get a copy of last week's notes, let me ask you to do me a favor. Email me. I'll send you my notes. So if you miss a week, I'll send you my notes or I can send you the the print off and you can go back and fill in the blanks. And these are, if you go or if if somebody's asking, man, I'd really love to listen to that. We're we're, we're recording these and they are being uploaded onto our website and our podcast. So you can go to EbenezerBaptist.com, watch, and then it'll take you to those messages and you can click on it and and listen. And I'd encourage you to share it. Um, I mean, I'm... Not to sell me, I'm talking about just because we've got the medium to get things out, which is really cool. So let me remind you, walk you through the church of Ephesus, the first church we saw. We saw Jesus in authority over the churches, but there was a clear distinction between those following and not following Jesus. But then he gives us the reason why they're not following. He says, you've left your first love. And so we talked about how the rebuke was Doing the right thing for the wrong reasons is wrong. They were doing these, these deeds, but they weren't doing it out of love. And he's calling them back into fellowship with Jesus so that he corrected them for having a cold heart. 
And they asked, he asked them to remember, repent, return. And as a result, there would be full fellowship with God, um, symbolized or in metaphorical sense at that point, that they'd be able to eat from the tree of life. I mean, there's no other place in Scripture where God, God walked in the garden yet until we get to the end. And so there was that promise. And then we looked at Smyrna. In the church in Smyrna, we see Jesus in, in this uh, form of resurrection and eternal life being certain in Jesus. He commended them that they remained faithful and pure despite what they were going through. And he brought up the Nicolaitans. And if you remember, the Nicolaitans was that group that they were claiming to be believers, but they were still dabbling in immorality and idolatry. It's kind of that um, cheap grace is, I think, the label that we talked about where we said, like, hey, I'm a, I'm a believer, but I can just do whatever I want to because Jesus is going to forgive me. And that's, that's not the case. He's calling them to holiness. There was no rebuke of Smyrna, but the ex- exhortation was to have no fear. Have no fear. And the promise was that the faithful would receive fullness of life in Jesus. And then we got to Pergamum. And we see Jesus pictured as the righteous judge, the one with flames in his eyes. And he commended them for remaining steadfast in faith to his name. But then he told them to beware of the lie of cheap grace. It's a lie. And I think we can kind of see the pattern here is that here are these believers. They're being persecuted, but they're also being tempted. They're being stretched between these two things where... They're being, they're being put down for having faith and identifying Jesus, but on the other side, they're being tempted to return back to sinful practices. And that's not what God wants for them. So the exhortation there was, there are temporal and eternal judgments for failing to repent. And one of the quotes I don't think I read last week was by Robert Thomas, who said, unwillingness to repent shows that a person is not a faithful believer. Sunday, I made the statement, and I want to unpack it even more now. There is a deterministic aspect of repentance. When I feel the Lord move on me and reveal to me, or reveal to me that I was a sinner and that I needed to be saved, I repented of my sins. I admitted I was a sinner, and I put my faith and trust in Christ, and I was saved. That's deterministic repentance. Now I'm a new believer. But as a new believer, I'm in this path and I'm walking toward Jesus, but I get off the path. I screw up, I mess up, I, 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 I get, I get d- discouraged and I need to continually, you know, if you want to call it preservation repentance, but you are doing this in order to stay in alignment with where it is Jesus is leading you. And so repentance isn't a one and done thing. It's a continual thing that we have to put in place because if it goes undealt, I can begin to, to sense the spirit quenched in my life and I can begin to sense that I'm out of fellowship with the Lord. And, it's, and, that, and you guys know this. Sin is a slippery slope, is it not? And if I'm not conscious of that, I think I, I don't, I, I'm trying to remember if that's where I had in my notes or I said to you that one of the things that I learned early on in my Christian walk was when I lay my head down at night is to say, Lord, forgive me of my sins for the day. Show me where I've messed up. Because I'm telling you, we'll do more sin than we'll ever recognize or realize. But to submit our heart to the, to the authority of God and say, God, show it to me, it's just great. So the promise to, to the Pergamum was this, our relationship with God comes with blessing. It really does come with blessing. So now let's dig in to the longest letter to the smallest city, the, city, the church at Thyatira. 
that just rolls off the tongue. You've got to say it over and over again. And we're starting in verse 18 of chapter 2. And to the angel of the church in Thyatira write, the Son of God who has eyes like a flame of fire and his feet are like burnished bronze says this, I know your deeds and your love and your faith and service and perseverance. Compare that to the church in Ephesus who was being reprimanded because they didn't have love. Well, this church does have love. And that your deeds of late are greater than they were at first. So not only do they have love, but their, their, their works are progressive. They're better than they were at the beginning. But I have this against you, that you tolerate the woman Jezebel. Okay, what's her name? Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess, and she teaches and leads my bondservants astray so that they commit acts of immorality and eat things sacrificed to idols. I gave her time to repent, and she does not want to repent of her immorality. Behold, I will throw her in a bed of sickness, and those who commit adultery with her into great tribulation unless they repent of her deeds. Did you check that out? Repent of her deeds. So they're mimicking what she is putting on her. We'll talk about that in a minute. And then he says, I will kill her children with pestilence. And all the churches will know that I am he who searches the heart and the mind. And I will give to each one according to your deeds. Why? Because he has eyes that are a flame of fire and his feet of burnished bronze. But I say to you, the rest who are in Thyatira, who do not hold to this teaching, who have not, who have not known the deep things of Satan... As they call them, I place no other burden on you. Nevertheless, what you have, hold fast until I come. He who overcomes and he who keeps my deeds until the end, I will give him authority over the nations. And he shall rule them with a rod of iron and the vessel of the potter of the, are broken to pieces as I have received authority from my father. And I will give him the morning star. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit is saying to the church. So let me, let me give you in a synopsis of what I see going on in here. Jesus Christ is the Son of God. Jesus has a perfect view of judgment and stands in strength. Let's take off the V there. It was a typo. And purity. His eyes are ablaze with fire. In other words, there is nothing outside of his sight, and his sight is perfect. But then standing in brazen brazen shoes or feet, he walks in absolute purity. Anytime we see metal in the Bible, it usually is referring back to, to some kind of pureness. And so we see that picture, but it, for this, in this verse, in, in verse 18, we get this image of Jesus as having a perfect view of judgment. That's why when he says down in verse number 23, he is the one who searches the hearts and the minds and will give to each one of you according to your deeds. We have to understand that you know, God can see what you and I do, but that's not, that's not the, the distance that he goes. He goes further. He looks at what's going on in your heart and he looks at what's going on in your mind. He knows why you do what you do. Now, I don't know about you. I don't know that I've ever done anything perfect with perfect motivation. Maybe I have. I can't judge that. God can. 
He can weigh that out on the scale and go, you know what? You were absolutely selfless in that aspect. But you were selfless, but then at the same time, you were thinking about yourself. God knows how to judge that. My intention is I want to please the Lord and do what he calls me to do. And I want him to search my heart and my mind and purify it just as his eyes are a flame of fire. And so then we get to this commendation And I think we need to hear this, that when we do things out of love, which is proper motivation, we see that love will express itself in the growth of faith and service and perseverance. He said in verse 19, I know your deeds and your love and faith and service and perseverance and that your deeds of late are greater than they were before. That's awesome. I I think we need to remember Ephesus was charged with not loving. This church is commended for loving, but the product of that love is faith in other words my my increase of trust should go up service what i do for christ what i do for god what i do for others should increase and perseverance like i'm not going to throw in the towel how many of you in here let's just say um empty nesting up have been married more than 40 years you've been married more than 40 years okay Will you guys affirm this statement that as you grew in your marriage, maybe at the beginning of your marriage you were like, well, he is a hunk or she is a doll. And you had this infatuation for for each other. But as you grew older, your love didn't, didn't stop. It changed to a more nurturing, compassionate. Would y'all, I see the heads nodding up and down. I mean, I'm 25 years into our marriage. I love Laura more than I've ever loved her before. I say that. I hope I show it. But I say that. But I think our, our love has, has just exponentially expanded. To me, she still is gorgeous and beautiful. And I want to care for her heart and her mind and her future and her well-being. That's what we try to tell our, our teenage grandkids and kids, right? It's like, oh, you just got a crush on them. That ain't going to last. Well, there's a reason you got married, because you had a crush on somebody. And that crush grew into infatuation, and then it grew into a commitment to nurturing love, but it grew into nurturing love, right? You complete me kind of things. When we begin to learn what it's like to love like the Lord, we begin to see how it completes these things in our life. Now let's get to the rebuke. And this one's going to take a minute. Um, I don't have a clock on the back wall, so I'm trying to keep an eye on my time here. Beware of the toleration of theological and moral errors. And I'm going to tell you there is nothing wrong with you saying that something is morally wrong. What I will tell you, though, is that you can be morally wrong. You can be morally wrong in the way you treat somebody with whom you morally disagree with. It does not give you permission to hurt, to degrade. Because even Jesus, when he looked at his crucifiers, he looked down and said, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. I think we need to approach anyone who is in, I think, theological disarray with grace you agree? I think we need to approach it with grace. And, and I think we need to assume like, that's, they're, just in, they're just in ignorance. They're blinded. 2 Corinthians 4.4 4 says that the God of this age has blinded 
the minds of unbelievers. And so I think it, it helps us to be able to think, okay, there are people that are in the wrong, but, but it's okay to not tolerate that either. Are you following? Because here's what was happening. There was a lady, a prophetess in the town named Jezebel, who was doing the same things that the Nicolaitans were doing. She was saying, hey, come on over. But what she was leading them into was two veins of sin. Immorality, which led to idolatry. All of these cities, most of these cities, worshipped fertility gods. Do we have kids in the room? Okay, we don't have kids in the room. Wait, I hear a baby. Well, she won't understand this. The way that most of them worshipped fertility goddesses and gods was with sexual immorality. That's why they had temple prostitutes. They practiced homosexuality. All kinds of different things because they thought it would appease and please the gods and then they would send rain. I will not go any further than that because it's gross. The god Baal in the Old Testament is a gross god. He was a fertility god. And they would practice these sexual acts to turn on Baal so that he would reign. That's as far as I'll go with that one. You can go look it up on Google. It's gross. It's disgusting. But they believed that there was a correlation with, if we're doing this, then the gods will send rain. Well, they also were doing this because they liked it. They were eliciting the lust of their flesh. And so Jezebel was doing this in the church, but we also know that Jezebel does not have a good reputation in the Old Testament because Jezebel was actually an advocate for Baal worship. And so we see here, and I think this is what's going to happen, is that she was kind of manipulating them, that, hey, if you don't participate with us, you can't come in here and buy and sell. And so there was a form of persecution taking place that if you're not going to participate and play games the way we play games, you're going to starve. You're not going to be able to buy, you're not going to be able to sell, you're not going to be able to trade. And so that's what she was doing and what she was, 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 was putting on those. And so as we see this allusion in this text to Jeremiah 17.10 where he says, I, the Lord, search the heart, I test the mind, even to give to each man according to his ways, according to the results of his deeds. He's calling them to say, hey, look, you need to, if you are partaking in this, you need to stop. Just stop it. Cut it off. Stop going to Jezebel's house and stay away from her. How many times have you had to look at yourself in the mirror and say, you know what, I know I love going, going uh, and having uh, t- uh, coffee with, with Sister Isabel, but every time I go, all she does is gossip and talk bad about everybody, and I get home and all I want to take is a bath because I feel so dirty. Well, maybe you need to stop having coffee with Sister Jezebel. I'm serious. You, you, you need to cut it off. Because if, if it's bringing you down, and you go back and it brings you down a little bit more, and then you go back and it brings you down a little bit more, it's, a slippery, it's that slippery slope. You're just getting right down into it. And before you know it, I mean, why do you think in America today that the biggest issue we're dealing with is sexual immorality? And it's in the churches. God help us. I'm not saying this in any way in a, con- a condemning way. I'm saying it in a way, God, help us to wake up. You see, we've got so much stuff going on with transgenderism and, and gender dysphoria and homosexuality, we've forgotten to talk about premarital sex. It's just as much a premar- an immor- immoral sin as this is. But now we've kind of isolated this one. Cohabitation. 
Living together and having sex before marriage is sexual immorality. Y'all are looking at me like, oh man, you're starting to meddle. But I'm being serious. God intended for sex to be between one man and one woman joined together for life in marriage. And if I've messed up, what is the, what's the ask here? Repent. And isn't it funny though, he said, I need you to repent of her deeds. There was no hope for her. She was under, she was under temporal judgment. He said, I'm going to kill her children with pestilence. And I, but I will give to each of you and give to each of them according to their deeds. But he says, not all of you are doing this, which is it's good. But then who does he attribute this to? The deep things of Satan. Boy, he's masterful, isn't he? He is, he is tricky, and we have to be careful of what we allow that to happen to us. So let me give you the, God, I love this stuff. Exhortation. Don't exchange faithfulness to obedience for acceptance and toleration of culture and society. I think one of the things that broke my heart was a couple of years ago when, when there was a church that was apologizing um, for a certain thing to a certain people group just so that they could make friends with that group. But that group is practicing sexual immorality. Culture doesn't need our apology. What culture needs for us is to do is live out the gospel of Jesus Christ that says that everyone is a sinner, separated from God, with judgment due. But Jesus died on the cross to take that sin away. That's what he's challenged us to do. So, so don't exchange faithfulness to obedience for acceptance and toleration of culture and society. God doesn't need us to tolerate society. God needs us to be in the world, but not of the world. We need to be salt and light. And if I'm trying so hard to be like the world, how will I ever point them to a world that's different? I can't. He's calling us to holy living. And so the promise for obedience is that we will reign with Christ if we persevere. Gosh, I'm jumping to chapter 3. We've got to go. All right, here we go. Actually, this is actually going to be kind of funny. Y'all got any questions about that? So we, we see... Uh, I'll give another summary at the end of this. But we see in Ephesus, they persevered, but they lost their love. In Smyrna, they endured, tri- endured tribulation, but there was no criticism. In Pergamon, they held to Christ. They didn't deny him, but they succumbed to cheap grace. And in Thyatira, they were loving and they were doing faith and service, but they were tolerating Jezebel. So there's that call. Now let's jump over to chapter 3. And we're going to look at Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. I'm going to give five minutes to each of these churches. So you all ready to write? And you all ready to fly? I hope so. Well, let me ask you this. Have you ever found yourself living in past success but aren't exhibiting any future or present successes? In other words, you're going back to the past. You keep living in the past. For many of you in this room that are Georgia fans, you lived in the Herschel Walker days, that one national championship. For years you were going, man, we're going to have a good team someday. Man, that Herschel Walker phase, that was awesome. And you lived in the, in the success of the past until two years ago. What happened? They finally won a gun. They won a national championship. So now you're living in the present success. Is, are you following with me? It's got, how many of you have ever seen the, the dumbest movie on the face of the planet, Napoleon Dynamite? There's a character in there named Uncle uh, Rico. And Uncle Rico, do, do you have it, Caleb? All right, so Uncle Rico is Napoleon's uncle who shows up to babysit him, but he's an older young adult who still thinks he can make college football and be, uh, become a, a quarterback. So I want you all to see who he is because some of you are like, I don't know who Uncle Rico is. Back in 82, 
I used to be able to throw a pigskin a quarter mile. Are you serious? I'm dead serious. Watch this. Ah! What the heck are you doing? That's what I'm talking about. I better go. How much you want to make a bet I can throw a football over the mountains? Yeah, if a coach would have put me in fourth quarter, we'd have been state champions, no doubt. No doubt in my mind. You better believe things have been different. I'd have gone pro. In a heartbeat. I'd be making millions of dollars and living in a big old mansion somewhere. So, so he's stuck in the past. He is stuck in the past. Actually, he's not even stuck in his past success. The only thing that he has proven is that he can throw his nephew's stake and hit his other nephew in the face. I mean, some of us in this room could probably do that. Coach, you could probably throw something hit me in the face right now, couldn't you? You probably thought about it. But, guys, that's, that is actually what's going on in the church in Sardis. They are living in their past reputation, but there's no present success. Follow with me in, ver- in chapter 3. To the angel of the church in Sardis write this, He who has seven, the seven spirits of God and the seven stars says this, I know your deeds, that you have a name, that you are alive, but you are dead. They're known for being alive, but they are dead. And he says, but I know your deeds, that you have a name. Notice that. I want you to notice, take note of how many times the word name pops up in this pericope. You have a name that you are alive or dead. But then he says, wake up and strengthen the things that remain which, which were about to die. For I have not found your deeds completed in the sight of my God. So let me, let me just meddle here and say this. Good intentions are great, but God does expect results. Is it safe to say that from that verse? May I, can I draw that conclusion? Intentions are awesome. God, I'm trying my best, but God wants results. But who do the results depend on? God. And how do those results are accomplished? We studied it Sunday morning. Abide in Christ and you will bear much fruit. So remember what you have received and heard and keep it and repent. Therefore, if you do not wake up, I will come to you like a thief in the night. You will not know the hour at which I will come. But you have a few... How many, of your, how many of you have your Bible says people? Does anybody say name? It is. It's, it's onoma. It's the word for name. A few of you have a name in Sardis who have not soiled their garments, and they will walk with me in white, for they are worthy. He who overcomes will be clothed in white garments, and I will not erase his name from the book of life, and I will confess his name before my Father and before his angels. Now, I, I did have an extended little conversation here about what it means to be a dead church but I want you to know something about Sardis uh, Sardis uh, sat on the side of a hill and they prided themselves in 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 being and not being able to be breached but unfortunately two different times in their history 547 BC and 218 BC their their city that sat on the side of the hill uh, Star Wars reference they had the high ground no one got, you got it, didn't you? Thank you. 
They had the high ground, but they lost. They were besieged. They were seized. In fact, Cyrus, the Persian who let the, the Israelites go home, seized uh, uh, Sardis and took them in 547 BC. And so, in light of that, though, in light of this arrogance that this city had, that nobody can touch us, Jesus Christ is seen, the one that has the seven spirits, which remember that was a, a unit, a picture of unity of the Holy Spirit. He is co-equal with Christ. Christ does not dominate him. He's not subjugated to Jesus. But remember, he does get sent, he's sent forth from the Father and the Son. But then he also holds the seven stars, those messengers. But he is in absolute power and authority as God. And that's the picture and the image and the message that he is sending to the church in Sardis. And so he commends them. And it's the message for us is we need to remain pure even if we're the only one. In fact, the church as a whole didn't get commended. But this subset, this, this remnant, we see the, the theme of the remnant in Isaiah. The whole church had basically fallen off, but there was this remnant that he says that had not soiled their garments. And so he's commending them for remaining pure, even if they were the only one. And so the application we can take from this is don't worry about always being accepted in the crowd. Don't let the peer pressure pull you away to doing things that you know are not good. If somebody is gossiping to you about somebody else, step back and go, wait a minute. You know what? If I'm not going to say that to their face, I'm not going to listen to it. I'm just giving you an example. Be pure in your behavior. And then he rebukes them because their reputation, what they were holding to in the past, being able to, I could throw that football over that mountain over there. It didn't equate to reality. They thought they were all right. But the reality was they were not. They weren't doing the deeds that he needed them to do. So then we get to verse 3. We we see this, again, this call. Wake up and repent. Wake up and repent. Because here's this dead church that has a plan. God has a plan for them. God, God has a will for that church and They're not doing what they're supposed to do, so he calls them to repent. Now, here's the thing. They're looking back to the past. Are traditions bad? Are traditional things bad? No. They are only bad when they become rote and you lose love. In other words, you're doing it out of just ritual. Or the tradition becomes a boundary that doesn't allow you to connect with somebody else. In other words, if I say, you know what, my traditions are set, and if you don't behave the way I behave, you don't matter. Well, that's false. You need to take all of those little idols that you've built around you, because that's what traditionalism has become, and you need to tear them down. If it comes between you and a loving relationship with another believer or a lost person, that tradition does not matter. But traditions are cool. They help us remember things. They help us remember to be focused on the word of God, they remember us to be focused on mission and focused on vision. And that's why, I mean, they needed to wake up, repent, and return back to the church that they were in the beginning. And so the promise for doing this, faithful believers will enjoy fellowship with Christ. He said that, he said, whoever overcomes, I'll be clothed in white garments, and I will not erase his name from the book of life. In that culture, when someone was going to be executed, They would go to the citizen's book and they would erase their name. And then they would execute them. This is not, what this is not saying is that someone can lose their salvation. What it is saying though is that for you and I, 
in our obedience to the Lord, we can expect someday that we'll be endowed with new clothes. A garment, a vestive robe, an honor to receive. That's what it said. And so when you think about this, when you think about that idea, it says, what, what do we do in, in, in response to this? We need to be engaged. If the church is dead, and the pastor has become the coroner, and your ushers have become walking zombies, then you need to do whatever is necessary to get back to a place where the word of God is being, is being preached and the spirit of God is moving. Because who was it that said he would remove lampstands? That was the message to Ephesus. If you don't repent, I will remove your lampstand. Remember, he is sovereign over the local church. If a church refuses to repent under the preaching of the word of God and does not long for the moving of the Holy Spirit to do the work that only God can do, then it should not shock anybody when that church ceases to exist. That's a hard truth, isn't it? But he's calling us to be faithful. So let's jump to Philadelphia. How much time have I got? All right, eight minutes. Maybe I should turn, skip Philadelphia and go to uh, Laodicea. Would it hurt anybody's feelings if I give you the points and then we, we land on Laodicea? Because we could, we could be like um, the Wanners class and we could be in Genesis for four years and we could be in Revelation for four years. There's just so much there. But I'm not, that's not a pick on them. I, I love what they're doing. In this text, Jesus is limitless in his scope and authority. There is nothing that's untouched by Christ. In this church, they are commended. This is the passage on doors. Oh, gosh, I love this passage. He is, he is exalted as the one who opens doors that no one can shut, and shut doors that no one can open. But the sovereignty, what this is saying here is that you are, you are weak, but I've got a door in front of you. And so the sovereignty of God more than surpasses my ability. What he's saying there is, is that if, say we were a church of 10 people and God was calling us to, to go on mission in Tibet and you're just like, well, we're just a small church. We don't have the money. We don't have the size. We don't. Is anything outside of the realm of the sovereignty of God? Yes or no? So when I begin to focus my faith on my ability, who becomes the God? Me. But we serve a God as Laura's mom used to say, that owns the cattle on a thousand hills. That's in the Psalms. And if he does that, and I'm his child, he'll more than provide whatever it is he's calling me to do. Amen? So he opens. So here's my, here's my application from that. If God ever puts a door in front of you, and you're trying to decide if it's a door from God, put your foot in it. And say, God, if this is not a door for me, slam it shut and make it hurt. That's what I prayed. I get a call. A week after I get back from the beach two summers ago, and it's a man named Earl Rochester. Y'all, y'all know Earl Rochester? Some, some of y'all are smiling. He was the search team committee, committee chair, so you should be smiling. And as he asked me questions and asked if I, if I wanted to put my name in for the church, I hung up the phone and I said these words, God, if this is a door you're opening, open it wide open. If it's not, slam it and make it hurt. And it never creaked. And here I am, and you're stuck with me till I retire. Because this church had no rebuke. He didn't rebuke them for anything, but what he does tell them is hold fast because he's coming. Hold fast because he's coming. And the promise for his obedience is that I can have utmost security in him. Listen to what he says. He who overcomes, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. 
That does not mean that you're going to turn into a rock when you get to heaven. That's why symbolism needs to be understood. You're not going to become a literal pillar. What it means is that your name will be marked. And he says, I will not, he will not go out from it anymore. What is in the temple in the Old Testament? The presence of God. You will be in the full presence of God. And he says, I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of the of the city of my God, which is the new Jerusalem, which comes down out of heaven from my God, and I will give him my new name. We don't know Jesus has another name, but the Bible says he does. He's got another name, but it's not been revealed. In fact, what you don't know about this city is this city was destroyed by an earthquake right at the transition from B.C. to A.D. And Rome came and rebuilt it because it was such an important city. And they gave that city a new name. Now, Jesus is saying, if you will remain faithful, I will mark you with the name of the new city, Jerusalem. Do y'all see the parallels in the history that's going on here? And so now let's get to this last one. We've already talked about it a little bit. Let's read it together. It says, to the angel in the church of Laodicea, write the amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of the creation of God. Let me go ahead and make a note here. That word is archaic. And there are some non-Trinitarian theologians who would say, oh, this is saying that he's created. It's not. The Greek actually says the RK of the creation of the God. So he is actually, I would say the rendering here, the beginning or the catalyst. Because what did John describe him as in John 1.1? In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Genesis 1.1, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth by what? The Word. So I want you to know that that's, that's what I see there. So, so in that first bullet point, let me just go ahead and drop it. Jesus, Jesus is the final word. He's the mic drop to everything. So then he says, I know your deeds, that you are neither hot nor cold. Remember, he doesn't commend them for anything. They're not doing anything right because they're doing nothing. You're hot or you're cold. I wish you were hot or cold. He said, so because you are lukewarm, neither hot nor cold, I'm going to spit you out of my mouth. But, but Because I say to you, I'm, you, you say, I'm rich. I have come wealthy. I don't need anything. And you do not know that you are wretched. This is one. Miserable, two. Blind, three. Poor, four. Naked, five. They're self-sufficient. That's the picture of I don't need anything. He says, I've advised you to buy gold refined by the fire so that you become rich and white garments so that you may clothe yourself. Who got white garments earlier? He who overcomes, in verse 5, will be clothed. How did they overcome? Because they had not soiled their garments. See, all this is intertwined, isn't it? Then he goes on to say this, those whom I love, I reprove and I discipline, therefore be zealous and repent. This to me is the verse... That defends Mary's statement earlier that this is the church. These people are claiming Christianity. And God is actually claiming them. This word is not agape. This word is phileo. Those whom I love, I reprove and I discipline. Just as it says in Hebrews chapter 12, that whoever God loves, he reproves as a son or a daughter. He, direct, he corrects them, he disciplines them. Then he says, verse 20, the one we read at the beginning, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. 
If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and will dine with him and he with me. It's a picture of fellowship. How often do we not hear the knock? How often is it that in our self-sufficiency, I forget spiritual disciplines. I forget the things of faith. And, a, and in the background, it's like a fan. You turn a fan on at night sometimes and you hear like... But after a while, there's a word for it psychologically. I just can't remember it. But you start, start ignoring the tick. He's still standing there. He's knocking. and He just wants to come in. And so his rebuke was this self-sufficiency that actually leads to self-idolatry. When we become self-sufficient, folks, we become God. That's the essence of the New Age movement in our world today is that we become God and we begin to worship ourselves. And so the exhortation is very simple. Let Christ in. And he says, repent and be zealous. You know what the word zealous implies in the Greek? Get on fire. Remember, he said, I want you hot or cold. Which one do you think he prefers? He wants you hot. Zealous. Zealous. And so he gives this final uh, promise. Finding victory in life prepares us for future rule. He kind of just brings everything to a close. Because as we see in these churches, look at these promises. To Ephesus, he gets to eat of the tree of life in the paradise of God. In Smyrna, deliverance from the second death. In Thyatira, the promise to have authority over the nations. Uh, In Thyatira, to receive the morning star, which we will know to be Jesus. Sardis, to be clothed in white garments. Philadelphia, to have the name of God written on us. He claims us. And then Laodicea, to sit on the throne with Christ, which I believe... Because I told you guys, I'm premillennial. I believe that Jesus is going to come back and rule for a thousand years. I believe that that is when that is going to happen. He'll come, he'll rapture the church, there'll be seven years tribulation. There was a point in there where he talked about that hour. I'll save you from that hour. There is a time span that has to be between there. And for God to fulfill that promise, the church has to be gone. But I believe that. And we're going to come back and we're going to rule over creation. Immortal like Jesus as there is still mortality taking place that will lead to the end of the thousand years where there will be the great white throne judgment. So here's some lessons that we can learn. Um, Do I have those in your study guide or do I leave them out? Presence of error is not necessarily hindrance for personal godliness. In other words, just because other people are doing bad doesn't mean you have to do bad. That's something we can learn from these churches. False doctrine often involves immorality. Actually, it always involves immorality. It goes down that slope. When you start buying into false doctrine, when you start becoming a little bit more liberal in your convictions, it will lead to immorality. False doctrine has no concern for loyalty to God. That's what false doctrine wants to do, is pull you away from being loyal to what God would teach. Understanding Christ is key to dealing with false doctrine. That's why each of the messages started with Jesus. Oh, sorry, didn't mean to do that. What you once did does not determine your present success. If 20 years ago you were faithful to doing this and doing that, and you served here and you served there and you did these things, that doesn't mean in your present that you can continue drawing. God still has works that are incomplete, and he wants them done. Take hold and persevere in the opportunities God presents you. Be looking for the doors. Look for the doors. God will put them in front of you, not just individually. We can't read this As an individual Christian, we have to read this through the lens that this is written to the churches. 
And so God will even put doors in front of churches. And if we miss those doors, you get the point. And finally, self-sufficiency destroys fellowship with Christ. You want to cut yourself off from Christ? Become self-sufficient. So I only went over two minutes this week, but I want, I want you to do me a favor. If you want my notes, and I know there's a lot of them. I've already had a couple of people write to me and say, hey, can each week, could you just send me the notes? Uh, there's 20 pages of notes. Someone asked me one time, can I read your doctoral um, report? I said, you know it's 350 pages, right? I said, if you want to read it, knock yourself out. I couldn't even get Laura to read it. I mean, it was, it was that boring. I said it's that boring. Because it was a report, it wasn't a book. But if you would like my notes, would you email me at jamiesmith at ebenezerbaptist.com and say, hey, I'd like the notes. And I'll create a uh, distribution list and I can send them to you from that. Let me pray. Father, as we dismiss tonight, this is like drinking water out of a fire hydrant. But Lord, let us hear what you are saying to the churches because what you said then is as applicable today as it was to them back then. God, raise us up to persevere in trials, to be holy in the midst of of an immoral society, but at the same time, God raising us up to be gospel-driven, love-driven people who want to see people saved. We love you in Jesus' name. Amen. Hey, y'all have a great week. And uh, again, email me if you want my notes.